Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. Participant readings are always a LitFest highlight. Anyone participating in LitFest is invited to sign up for a three to five minute reading slot. Readers are energized by adrenaline and buzz long after they've read their words to the always warm and eager-to-be-entertained audience. The second LitFest participant reading took place on June 14, 2013, and featured 12 readers from a mix of genres. Hi guys, uh, welcome to the Lighthouse and welcome to the second participant reading of the 8th Annual Lit Fest. I want you guys to uh, turn off your cell phones, turn off your pagers, your iPads, and maybe you might even want to turn off your mind and just relax for a little bit and enjoy the evening. We have a great set of readers. And the first person who's reading tonight, or the first author, is Candace Kearns Red. She's a, the author of Shaping True Story into Screenplay and has written a slew of scripts based on true stories, some of which have been optioned or commissioned by film producers at Fox, Disney, and HBO. She holds a degree in dramatic writing from NYU and worked as a script consultant to the stars for over a decade before fleeing to Colorado. She received her MFA in creative nonfiction from Antioch University, L.A., and now teaches writing for Antioch Midwest. Hi, I'm going to invite up my um, team here. I have a, a team of uh, readers that I'd like to thank. Jeanette Matusiak, who's going to read the role of Mildred, and um, Carrie Booth, who is going to read the role of Jean and young Jean and all sorts of little bit parts that are coming that will come up, the trustee and the sergeant, and, and Ray Kemble, I, gosh, I wanted to say Kemble, so thank you. Kemble, um, who is going to read the part of Clyde Smaldone. This is a screenplay about, um, this based on a book uh, called Smaldone. Uh, the Smaldone family, especially Clyde Smaldone, ran Denver's mob in the 20th century. So here we go. Thanks, everyone, for coming out tonight and being here, and um, here we go. Interior, Colorado, U.S. District Attorney's Office, evening. Out the windows, the Rocky Mountains are snow-capped in Purple Mountain Majesty. 1957. On a shiny walnut desk, an unwieldy pile of mugshots, crime scene photos, and news clippings. Focus on a 1933 Denver Post front page. The headline, Mob Boss Roma Killed. The subtitle, Small Dones Take Over Denver's Crime Syndicate. The photo, a diminutive Italian man lies dead beneath blood-spattered walls, his mandolin and music stand beside him. Our gaze travels behind a cloud of swirling cigarette smoke to the wall, where a makeshift poster hangs. On it, rows of wallet-sized black-and-white photos are neatly labeled. From the top, left to right, Clyde, flip-flop, Smaldone, Eugene, checkers, Smaldone, Chauncey Smaldone, Anthony Smaldone, Polly, Fat Polly, Villano, Joe, the Ram, Salardino, and Frank, Blackie, Mazza. Gene, voiceover. The newspapers always made my father out to be this, this huge menace to society. Getting him and my uncles behind bars made for good headlines and sold a lot of papers. But to me, he was just dad. He was the guy who held me on his lap, played ball with me, made ice cream sundaes for me and my teammates after practice, 
We had breakfast every morning, and he was home for dinner every night at six. We were just like any other family, really. Exterior, Colorado Highway, 1944, day. A crisp alpine expanse of high plains and 14,000-foot peaks. Cattle and antelope dot the fields. Farmers harvest hay and boys fish the streams. A coyote crosses the highway just as... A 44 Cadillac Fleetwood cruises by. Interior Cadillac Day. Jean, seven, smart and intense, rides in the front next to his mother, Mildred, late 20s, tall, German, and gorgeous. He stares out the window at the scenery. Young Jean. Why does he have to work so far away? Why does he have to work so far away? It's only for a few years, sweetie. Her words are almost reassuring. Exterior, prison entrance day. The Cadillac rolls through the entrance of Canyon City State Penitentiary. Guards close the gate behind them. Jean takes note of the guards and barbed wire fences everywhere. Young Jean. Why did they have so many guards? Mildred. It's a hospital for sick people that have done bad things. The guards just make sure they don't try to leave before they're well. What kind of bad things? Just lying and stealing, things like that. That's enough questions for now. (laughs) They park in a space marked visitors, then get out and walk towards a long one-story building. Gene looks around in wonder. He sees more armed guards surveying from a watchtower. Interior, visiting room, day. Young Gene, Mildred, and Clyde, 30s, shrewd, charming, and sentimental, visit in a cubicle. Prisoners, guards, and visitors can be seen in the background. Gene sits on his dad's lap. Clyde's prison garb does resemble scrubs. You, uh, been, uh, listen to your mother? Yes, Daddy. When are you coming home? Uh, <laughs> uh, soon, son. <laughs> Interior, Cadillac Day. The return trip. Young Jean is thoughtful. Is Dad a bad guy? Mildred almost runs them off the road, suddenly stern. Absolutely not. Your father is a good man. And why is he in jail? Caught, she has no answer. He turns his gaze out the window. Interior, Clyde Cell, morning. He's lying on his bed reading A Critique of Pure Reason by Immanuel Kant. His brow is furrowed in deep concentration. A trusty comes by, jingling keys. Trusty. Small dome, it's uh, your lucky day. <laughs> Clyde comes out of his philosophical fog, realizes... Exterior, across the street from the prison, day. Clyde stands alone at a bus stop waiting. Interior, bus, driving, day. Several World War II soldiers in uniform ride the bus with Clyde. He watches them closely. One soldier notices. Serviceman. Hey, buddy, uh, how come you ain't fighting in the war? Ha! <laughs> what do you think I'm on the bus for? I'm heading to Denver right now. Gonna join up. Interior recruitment office, day. Clyde stands in line with several other aspiring servicemen, all signing up to serve in the fight against Hitler. When he gets to the front of the line, a beefy sergeant takes his form. Clyde has a gleam in his eye. Sergeant. Wait there. Clyde takes a seat in a cheap chair. Dissolved to later, the same sergeant scrutinizes the room. Smaldone! There's somebody here named Clyde Smaldone? Clyde approaches him. Yeah, yes, sir. Um, I'm Clyde Smaldone, (laughs) sir. Sergeant looks him over and not appreciatively. 
You, uh, you just get out of Canyon City? Yeah. Yes, sir. We don't need no people like you in this man's war. Clyde seems about to protest, but then swallows it, turns, and walks away. You guys need to go audition on The Voice or something like that. (laughs) When she wasn't, and thank you, that was really good. When she wasn't working on business journalism articles, Heather Caliendo wrote and finished her commercial fiction book, Stepping Out of Bounds. The novel follows Christy Coleman, the wife of a Dallas Cowboys player. When Christy finds out her husband cheated on her, she refuses to become another emotionally destroyed wife. Under an alias, Christy will write for an online sports magazine to shine the spotlight on the dark secrets of the sports community. I'd like to introduce Heather. Okay. Have to say, I'm pretty surprised you called so soon, Damien says as I walk into his apartment. Yeah, well, I might just be full of surprises before it's all said and done. What does that mean? I don't answer. There's really not much to Damien's apartment. I walk into what I assume is the living room with a faded brown couch in front of a large flat screen TV. In between is a coffee table that has scattered Chinese takeout boxes, a couple beer cans, and an empty wine glass that has a bit of dried red wine in the bottom of the glass. This place has to be about 700 square feet, smaller than what I'm used to. I look around more and see that his kitchen has a bar with a couple of stools pulled up to it. I notice a new MacBook Pro laptop is featured prominently on the bar right beside a pizza box. He quickly picks up the empty cans and food cartons. He moves them to the kitchen trash. No need to clean up on my account, I say, and think how my voice is raised an octave. Am I really sure I know what I'm doing? No worries, he says. I haven't had much company lately. He quickly puts the wine glasses in the sink. I could tell he was pretty taken aback when I called him, because it was just a few hours ago that he has turned my life upside down. I needed to come over tonight, even if it was two in the morning, because what I plan to do is going to drive me insane if he doesn't know. He mentioned I probably needed some time before talking more about Ben. But this isn't just about Ben. It's about, well, everything. Everything that I know. I look back at his computer. Is this where you do all your work? Damien shrugs. Yeah, why not? I have the laptop and can type either at the bar or over on the couch. Not much to it. And not much for fancy things, as you can probably tell. Can I get you anything to drink? Do you have any vodka? I do indeed. Want a mixture with that? No. Damien goes to the cupboard and retrieves a clean glass. I take a seat on the couch and he hands me my drink. I take a long sip and see him glancing at me out of the corner of my eye. So, I say to him, when are you going to post a story about Ben? Damien takes a sip of his drink and then says, I told you, I have some other pressing stuff to write. Sometime in the next couple of weeks, most likely. Should be fun for you breaking the news of a high-profile tight end screwing around on his wife. Damien rests his forehead as he sits down next to me. Like I said earlier, just another story. I take a big gulp of my vodka and then turn to face him. I have to ask again, why did you tell me? He sighs and leans his head back on the couch. 
Christy, I know you have a lot of questions for me, but maybe we should just talk about this another time. Give yourself some time to digest the news. Why should I have to wait? I'm just trying to fit all the pieces together and make sense of it all. I'm not sure there's any sense to be found. People fuck up. Simple as that. It's not just that angle. Something I keep wondering about is, well, you make a living on revealing this shit to the world. Do you normally give a heads up to the people you're writing about? He shakes his head. You're the first one. Why do I get special treatment? It's really not that hard to figure out. Since I started the site, everyone has been so faceless to me. Another groupie, another DUI, another potential trade. It all runs together. But what I found out about Ben and that his wife is someone I kind of knew from university, it's just, I don't know. I felt you should get an advanced word. So maybe you can figure out what you want to do, if that's anything. You do realize this has ruined my life, right? I ask quietly. Would you rather live a lie? No. And that's why I'm here. I don't follow. Let me explain. It's, it's kind of bizarre, but as soon as, as you said Ben's name, I realized that everything I've been living up to this point has been a fucking facade. I lived in a, a fantasy land where I thought my life was perfect. I was married to a star football player, had plenty of friends, expensive clothes, a big mansion. You get the picture. When you said Ben's name, I also realized what an absolute idiot I've been. What Ben did to me is fucked up. However, what's more fucked up is finding out about this and letting it slide. Letting it slide because that little prenup you sign says that if you get divorced, you're out left to dry. The glitz and the glam is over. You're broke. You're sent back to the real world. So you're going to leave Ben and start your life over. I figured that from the start. No, not yet. What? You're contradicting yourself. This isn't just about Ben cheating. This is about the shit that goes on that no one does anything about. Things that hurt people because they're so wrapped up with this make-believe world. Things that are seriously wrong. What other shit do you know about and how did you find out? What did you think I used to do all day? Sit around and watch TV? I've been attached to the hip of Amber Tenner for more than a year. Do you know who she is? The quarterback's wife. I know of her. Yeah, well, she knows everyone's dirty little secrets. That's what happens when you're the ringlinger, ringlinger, ringleader, I suppose. I swallow and take a deep breath as I continue. But not just secrets about the Cowboys either. Every team in Dallas and much more. If your husband used to play here, you might come down for a weekend and give Amber a visit. And since I've been hanging with her, I know who has huge gamble and debts, who's been beating their wife, and who just got caught fucking the babysitter. So let me get this straight. You're going to expose all these secrets by giving me all this information. Correct. But I'm going to write it. I'm going to do it all. Thank you, Heather. It's kind of like getting a little ad for each of the people's novels. It's kind of fun. <laughs> Judith Sarah Gelt writes personal essay and memoir. She's been sucking writing knowledge out of talented lighthouse instructors and visiting experts for years now. Waited for her father and sister to die before completing a draft of her memoir and now reads it to her dog daily since her 28-year-old daughter doesn't feel quite ready to hear it. I'd like to introduce Judith. Okay, this is a personal essay. I don't know. It's a memoir. They're both the same to me. It's titled... 
In the movie version, Jim would die. I can't, I can't figure this out with my glasses. By 16, I had cultivated three things, straight brown hair to my waist, mediocre grades, and my virginity. James Madison Trog lived on Denver's south side, a few miles from my upper middle class home, and shared a teeny box of a house with another 18-year-old. Emancipated boy men, they left for jobs instead of school each morning. Tanya and I met them while hanging out at Denny's. Surprisingly, I was the only one who ended up with a boyfriend, my first. Never popular with boys, I figured I was too shy or not skinny enough. Jim and his roommate Kenny's independence from school and parents blew our minds, but not more than the hash they shared from beer can pot pipes. This was spring 1968. Scorching our lungs on searing smoke, we'd suck hard, jerk back, and fight to hold it. We got high, lounging on their secondhand sour-smelling sofa. Foam rubber jutting from rips in torn fabric, dark and grimy from greasy food. Some nights, we sprawled on foul, fraying rugs that smelled like wet dog. And we watched TV, laugh-in and Mission Impossible, amazed no siblings or parents could stroll in, that none lived there. Mine were absent, too, but only because they didn't notice me much. My mother was always sick. My father was off winning bread. Jim and I began to stretch out on the double mattress on his bedroom floor. The door wide, the bedding bunched like a shoe in my back. Girl giggles and boy snorts accompanied us from the living room. And always, loud Steppenwolf pounded. Come with me, little girl, on a magic carpet ride. Born to be wild was probably more to blame than the pot, or Jim for that matter. But his attention was another drug in the small house. Mostly, I remember Jim was blonde, wispy, dirty blonde hair tucked behind his ears, dangled in clumps to his shoulders, and no body hair at first. But as the clothes came off, I noticed light fuzz covering the pale skin on his chest and stomach. He was a human peach. <laughs> I never saw the, the pubic parts. If there's water out there, I'll take some. We didn't talk much. Our mouths were busy with joints or hookahs, but I knew we would do it that night. Since Jim was my first boyfriend, having sex wasn't something I'd been planning. Still, I tried concentrating on boring Civil War pages in my history textbook that day, and I decided, why not get it over with? For some reason, having sex didn't qualify as maturity in my mind. Oh, thank you. I don't know why I'm nervous reading about having sex (laughs) crazy for some reason having sex didn't qualify as maturity in my mind having sex was an unknown confusing physical rite of passage but I did not see it as rebellion or the direct link to womanhood Jim didn't say one word after we entered the bedroom The hall light hit my eyes through the crack where the door didn't close. Not a single candle flickered. And I thought, Barbara lit candles in Funny Girl, didn't she? I wasn't nearly stoned enough. (laughs) I lay naked under Jim, legs spread, but not knowing where to put them. Flat on the bed, straight up, folded over him. (laughs) 
was aware of pain, the poke and prod and stretch and chafe from how hard he worked to get in. My eyes were wide, inches from his face. His lips were squeezed shut. His lips were never on mine. Forcing all Streisand-like scenes from my head, I thought, the pain isn't as bad as I thought it would be. When Jim startled me, he grunted. That was great, he said. (laughs) He was on his way out the door. Uh Uh-huh, I said to his back. As I sat up and got dressed, the sunshine of your love blasted from the stereo and clapped and sang, I'll stay with you till my seeds are dried, drowning out any sounds of others in the house, the sticky wet collected in my panties as I stood alone in the bedroom. Back to this slide, I guess. We said goodbye at his front door without touching, head down. I walked the 30 minutes home, seeing only gray concrete and black asphalt, not upset. Not sad, just aching between my legs and thinking, geez, is that what all of us is about, losing your virginity? What a relief. If there was any surprise, it was that the huge hype about sex seemed so overblown. I wondered about birth control. There hadn't been a rubber, but I wasn't worried. I'd find a way to get on the pill now that I had a boyfriend. (laughs) An advantage, one of many, it turns out, upper-middle-class white girls in the 60s took for granted. After that night, Tanya and I still hung out at the boys' house to get high. Jim and I still sat together on the stinky sofa, but he never suggested going to his room again, and I was relieved not to be worrying about condoms or getting those birth control pills or even whether sex could feel good. Tanya and I discussed these things, but now, of course, I was the only one with experience. One night, Jim and I stood in his kitchen while Tanya and Kenny were in the living room getting stoned. A foul smell rose from a stack of dishes in the sink. I couldn't keep my eyes from the plastic wastebasket, stuffed with soiled paper plates and garbage, sticky stripes of dried Coke down the sides. He rifled through the fridge. Want a beer, he said. No, thanks. I hated the bitter taste, a reason I'd like smoking weed. Jim turned from the fridge, leaned back, took a long swallow from a can, then he looked at me. I have a tumor in my brain. What? I took a step back. There's a malignant tumor growing in my brain. That means cancer. He took another slow swallow. Does it hurt? I sounded ridiculous the minute I said it, but I knew I was in new territory for sure. No, not yet anyway. I couldn't pull my eyes from the gritty floor between us. There were black streaks covering gray linoleum that may have been white or yellow once. Are you going to be okay? I looked at his face. His mouth was straight. His eyes squeezed tight. Cancer. It was all I could think. Cancer. 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 Jim blinked, then looked away. No. I'm going to need hospitalization soon, so we shouldn't see each other anymore. I don't want you seeing me like that. That ended the party. He walked me to the living room, and we waved goodbye at the front door. As Tanya and I walked toward her impala, my head spun. This was territory way more adult than having sex. I turned to send a nod of regret, a sad farewell face. The door stood open, but there was no one in sight. I woke every morning convinced Jim would call. Wouldn't you want me around, at least by phone, during this horrible time? We weren't in love, God, no. We hadn't gone outside his house together. But I knew he was thinking about me. He'd been my boyfriend. We'd had sex. You're crazy, Tanya said. We'd hunkered down on the floor in my bedroom, always the cynic. She didn't understand relationships. Practical Tanya hated the mushy parts in Barefoot in the Park. Couldn't get enough of the graduate. She had hold of my arm. He said he didn't want to see you. 
Yeah? Doesn't mean he doesn't want to talk. You'll see. I put a stack of albums on, Steppenwolf first, then Cream. He never called. That's when I began a relationship with the Rocky Mountain News obituaries. Every day I waited for my father to finish the morning paper, then slipped it under my arm and into my room. With newspapers spread like preparations for paper mache, I located the obits. I wanted to find it. James M. Trog died June 22nd, born April 1950 to Barbara and Claude Trog of Denver. Of course, I had no idea what his birthday was or his parents' names. Donations may be made to the National Malignant Brain Tumor Society. Surely he'd be dead by June's end. July's obituaries didn't mention him. I'd been a huge fan of Ben Casey. He was the TV neurosurgeon removing ghastly tumors from patients' brains. As a result, I could picture Jim in his hospital bed, head wrapped in white bandages, eyes closed, moans from deep in his chest. His mother, blonde like him, holding his peach fuzz-covered hand in her pale white one while she bent over, sobbing. I could hardly stand it. The first August newspaper hit the drive, and I raced to it, beating my father. I scanned the obits. No Jim. Could I have missed it? When the call came, a week later, it was Jim's roommate. Judy, hey, want to go out Friday? What? I stood in the study, thrilled to hear Kenny's familiar voice. Want to come over, get high? What about Jim? I held my breath. Oh, my God. If Jim had just died, if Kenny was trying to break it to me, I'd cry. I'd go out with Kenny to Jim's funeral. Jim doesn't care. He's going out that night, so he won't even be here. I just asked him. I couldn't breathe. The liar. My hand trembled. But my addiction won, and I gripped the phone tighter. Sure, what time? Thanks, Judith. I, I didn't know Ben Casey was a neurosurgeon. <laughs> no, and, and that was a beautiful twist in there. That was amazing. Um, Shauna? Shauna Irvin has conceded her age and given up her childhood dream to become a circus trapeze artist. Instead, she is pursuing an identity as a writer and writing about trapezes and other not-so-ordinary dreams. Tonight, she is reading from an essay titled Portrait of a Dream about becoming the first person to start figure skating as an adult to pass the senior skating test. Kind of like the black belt of skating. Please welcome Shauna. It's almost my turn now. I've practiced this test, fine-tuned every quick turn, sustained edge and extension until I dream it, and feel my muscles automatically rehearsing in empty spaces in my day. I step onto the quiet ice, glide back and forth, bend deep and lean hard back and forth, feeling the ice. The judges say they are cold, so they head up to the lobby to warm up, giving me a chance to practice. I fill the clean sheet of ice with my marks, watch as my turns grow wider and stronger. The judges come back and I begin with a silent nod to them, some quick, powerful steps into the first move. I hear my soft CD playing just loud enough that I can hear it, but not so loud the judges can't hear the slice of the turns, the quick rockers and silences where they need to be, the pure edges switching to another sharp edge rather than the gasp of a flat edge. I feel my body rise and fall with the music and my legs hold me secure with each turn. 
I go through each move, each one taking hours, yet seconds. I am focused on each turn, arm position, tight feet and knees. I hear reminders my coaches gave me before I stepped on the ice. The echo of a coach shouting as she chased me in practices. You can go faster than that. Come on, bend, dig in, dig in, go, go. I can't help but smile and enjoy the imagined race. Pull hard into the beginnings and ends of edges. Lean my body wide into the curve, my arms wrenching power of one-footed intricate maneuvers across the ice, then around the end and back down the other diagonal on the other foot. Faster, faster, my body twists and pulls until I finish. I extend my free foot, breathless but happy. I pour every ounce of effort, energy, and breath I have into each section, see my hard work become a snowy beauty, the skids and stops cloudy between the thin, perfect edges, the shiny ice left between the marks. I did my best, I thought, my best for today. I step off the ice, slip on my guards, grab my water bottle, and talk to my coaches. We walk up to the lobby where we consider what the judges might do. I need two of three to pass the test. In the past, I've aimed for high scores and all three judges to circle past on the test forms. Today, I want only the minimum score, just what will see my dream become reality. A pass is still a pass. A volunteer quickly hands one coach the papers and scurries back to the ice. My coach holds up the test papers and turns her body as I try to lean over to see. I pulse my nails into my palms, reminding myself to breathe. Breathe. She reads, nods slightly, flips to the second judge's form, and the third. Breathe. Then she holds up the papers, fans them out. Pass. Fail. Pass. I think I squeal, but that might be one of my coaches. (laughs) Three of us erupt into a huge, wide, swaying hug. Tears trickle past my smile over my coach's shoulders. The day in the lobby are a blur as I somehow walk back to the locker room. I sit on the small bench and shake through taking off my skates and waiting for my copy of the test papers. When I get them, I sit forgetting I still have one skate on. I read the papers again and again. This is real, I think. I did it. I really did it. In realizing my dream, I feel the beginnings of letting go. I feel an ache like petals curling and wobbling a little in the breeze. The summer fades back into fall. I know I will dare to dream through other winters, knowing spring will come. I finish drying my skates, place them carefully in my small rolling suitcase, and zip it shut. I stand up, pull my bag behind me, and walk out of the rink. come out of the skating rink. I got such a great picture in my head. Thanks, Shauna. That was amazing. Um, Nancy Goodman has been working on her novel in progress for a little over five years with the help of Lighthouse Workshop and a two-year Lighthouse Workshops and a two-year writing program through Stanford University. She is one for one in publishing, having submitted to and published one essay on literarymama.com. She is eager to start querying agents so she can destroy her perfect record. (laughs) Nancy. So I emailed um, Dan a little bit late to have you be able to tell you that the name of the story is 
um, sneaking back in, and um, this is from somewhere in the middle, and so all you really need to know is that Adrian is the main character, and her friend Delaney is with her. They're in an eating disorder treatment center. Adrian is anorexic, and Delaney is bulimic. That's all. So, I lifted another spoonful of the cereal to my mouth. Corn, crunch, cream, sweet, smooth, almost slimy. The soaked mess slid down my throat. Remnants stuck in the crannies of my back teeth. Delaney poured me a second bowl, using her hand to feel when it was full, since the nightlight in the corner of the bathroom offered little more than a glow. We sat on the tiled floor, hiding from the treatment center night shift. She whispered, you're all nervous, enjoy it, and added, more, added milk and then more sugar. Delaney, I giggled to cover up my shaky voice, and then pushed the bowl away, scraping the tile. She shushed me and pushed it back. I couldn't let her think I was that rigid, that bound up in my anorexic self-absorption, as she called it. My next bite was almost all crunch. One of the flakes must have had a pile of sugar on it that hadn't spilled into the milk. Sweet pleasure shot through to the back of my mouth and up the sides of my face to the top of my head and then dissipated. I leaned my head out of the nightlight's pathway and tipped my bowl in its direction, searching the cereal for more sugar. I found a flake that had white granules trapped under its curled edge, picked it up with my fingers and put it in my mouth, careful not to spill its treasure, but it didn't give me the same jolt of concentrated sweetness that time. So I just dug my spoon into the depths of the bowl. Milk splattered my pajamas as I dumped the overflowing spoonful into my mouth. I could barely chew with my mouth closed, needing to slurp and to keep it all in. As the flakes became soggy with milk, I sucked the liquid from the cornmeal and swallowed it all. Delaney poured herself another bowl and kept eating. Her mouth was too full to talk. Hmm, she asked. She motioned to my bowl with her chin and waved her spoon at me, indicating she wanted me to refill. I sat back against the bathroom cupboard and smoothed my PJ shirt over my round belly. I couldn't believe I had eaten the equivalent of more than a full day's worth, maybe two days' worth of calories in one sitting. Wet cement solidified in my gut. My cheeks felt like they'd ballooned out, pushing up on my lower eyelids. Delaney reached over and poured more cereal into my bowl. I shook my head. I'm too full, I moaned. You are not. Two bowls is just an appetizer. You said you wanted freedom, so this is how you break free. She lifted her spoon triumphantly, and there, in the dark, I ate the rest of what she poured for me in silent tears. Thanks, Nancy. Dan said, you know, that everybody's just going to do these little tiny pieces, and I thought, well, and I just saw what a beautiful nugget can come in a short period of time. That was gorgeous. Thank you. And Martha Scherzer. Am I saying that right? Has never actually lived in Denver, but during four months she spent here in 2002, she took a lighthouse screenwriting workshop and has been a fan ever since. She currently lives in Atlanta. Tonight she's reading from the opening of what may or may not be a novel that may or may not be about a young photojournalist based in Bangkok who is diagnosed with breast cancer. Thank you very much. Um, I'll just start. Lena rolls her suitcase out into the thick Bangkok air that pushes into her nostrils and lungs 
presses into her skin. It will be at least another month until the rains come. She assumes she'll be back by then in time to celebrate the relief the deluge brings. A woman approaches Lena from the street wearing a tight-fitting, very short dress. She is unsteady on her feet, maybe drunk or high on yaba. In the artificial light, it's hard to tell. Lena scans her surroundings knowing no one else is there at 4.30 on a Tuesday morning. She recedes into the shadow of her apartment building instead of walking toward the taxi waiting in the street. The woman swerves again and then tracks back toward Lena coming right at her. Sawadika, the woman says in a man's voice and hands Lena a car key while picking up her suitcase. She turns toward the taxi, takes a few steps and then stops, puts the suitcase down and removes her hot pink stilettos. Lena watches from close behind as this person carries her suitcase in one hand and high heels in the other, now moving quickly and steadily. She opens the trunk of the taxi, throws Lena's suitcase in, and extends her hand toward Lena for the key. Airport, yes? She gets into the driver's seat. Yes, Lena replies from the back seat. No traffic now, good. I'm hurry, have to get back home. I supposed to work in the bar tonight, but my brother called me to say drive for me, and I have to drive taxi for him. He not good, my brother. He, de- he take drugs, yaba, you know? He say, you katoy, you know, lady boy. He say katoy like, like hate. He shout, you do what I say. Still, I must to work in my office, travel agent, at 8 o'clock. My name, Noi, what your name? Lena. Hi, Lena, she says in a voice Lena has heard in plenty of Bangkok bars. Noi takes off down Soy 10 and turns left onto Sukhumvit. They stop at the light near Soy 1, the first side street off the main drag in Bangkok's wealthiest neighborhood. It's a small Soy that would mean nothing to Lena if it weren't where her present reality had been shattered 13 days ago. Three floors above the Starbucks, Aubon Pan, and McDonald's that fill the lobby, a doctor at Bumrungrad Hospital shoved a piece of paper across his desk at her that said, Mammary Carcinoma. We not take expressway. No traffic. I save you money, okay? Sure, Lena says. I'm in no hurry. Noi turns back to look at Lena. You pretty, Lena. Very nice. Good boobs, too. You lucky, all you farang. I want boobs like yours, but me, I work two, three jobs to save money for boobs like that. Not fair. <laughs> you don't want boobs like mine, Lena says. Trust me. Thanks, Martha. I'm just getting this sense of all the talent we have in the room. <laughs> just a short period of time. <laughs> So the next person is I've had the pleasure of working with in a class. So Anna Stoll is a captain, retired U.S. Army, Army Nurse Corps. Most notable, notable deployment, Abu Ghraib Prison, Iraq, 2006-2007. Now she writes Emergency Management Policy for the Department of Interior U.S. Geological Survey. Her daughter, Madeline Stoll, was in third and fourth grade during Anna's multiple Deployments. Her father was in Iraq at the same time she was. With both parents gone, Madeline lived with Anna's mom, her grandma Nana, in Charlotte, North Carolina, for two years. 
Now she is a rising junior at Denver Academy. Anna will be reading an essay about her last day on the job. Madeline will be reading an essay about the day Anna came home from Iraq, which she wrote for her lit class at DA a few weeks ago. So, after Madeline and I actually sat down and were looking at essays and talking about how to kind of put this together, because this is, you know, it's a tag team, it's unusual, it's, it's a little different, and it's really from the heart. Madeline started working on her essay, and, you know, she was reading it every day, and I was like, you know, this isn't about me. This is actually her day, and it was centered around her. And she was actually way more important, vastly more important. Um, So I'm not going to read anything at all. And actually, Madeline's going to read uh, The Waiting, uh, her essay. (laughs) I couldn't breathe. The room was becoming stuffy. Hundreds of families occupied the benches that were placed along the walls. The people around me began to fade and became distant. I had many questions in my head. Would she act the same? Has she changed? Would she recognize me? Is she actually coming home? It's 2007 and I am Fort Hood, Texas, waiting for my mother to return from Iraq. I couldn't handle all the excitement, the eagerness. My palms were sweaty. My feet couldn't stop moving. My eyes couldn't focus on something for more than 15 seconds. My heart felt felt heavy. I couldn't take the waiting. It has been two years. She left when I was in third grade. I was counting down each day until I got to see her again. Two long years. I lived with I lived with my nana because not only did the army take away my mom, they also took my dad at the same time. He spent a year in Iraq holding a gun driving through the countryside. I know this because of the pictures he would send to me. Nana was my mom and dad for third and fourth grade. She taught me how to play cards, cook a good meal, and let me keep any stray animal I wanted to. Even even with Nana's love, these years consisted of yelling, crying, longing, emptiness, and confusion. But in those two years, I matured, became more independent, and understood why she had to leave. She left to help those in need, to save lives. But now I was in need, the need to have my mother back to have my rock back, my soulmate. She left because she is a hero. It was the day she was coming home and I needed to look my best. She loved neutral tones, so I wore my brown long sleeve shirt and my camouflage pants. I wanted to look the same as her. I wanted to stop crying every night, not knowing if she was alive or not. I wanted to stop watching the news to see the roadside bombs or the soldiers killed in combat, just hoping, wishing that it wasn't my mom. I wanted her to hold me again, to make up songs with me, and tell me everything is going to be all right. I needed her back, and she had been gone far too long. People started to fill the room as butterflies filled my stomach. My eyes darted back and forth. They told me there was a chance that she wasn't on the plane, but I had hope. I found her. I never cried so hard in my life. I found my mom. She looked tired, worn, and sad, but none of that mattered now that she was home. My mom was all mine again. She is a hero. She is my hero. But what if she leaves again?
don't know how to come up here and talk after that. <laughs> that was really beautiful, very moving. Thank you. <laughs> Shirley Sullivan started writing poems in elementary school. Her first, <laughs> her first lighthouse class was with John Brim, the wonderful, and it's all enrolled from there. She's proud to have a poem in David Rothman's Don't Just Sit There, her most recent reentry into the world of submissions. She's been a classical singer, a trail cook, and grandmother of five. Please welcome Shirley. Thank you. So this poem came from, it was supposed to be a joke, um, and somebody took it seriously. <laughs> came from a newspaper article about um, Saudi Arabia, and it's called Lament for Executioners. I read today that no one will apply to be the next axeman in proud Dubai. The trade of executioner is dead, though it's still possible to lose your head, or to be sentenced to an obsolete death by beheading, ultimate delete by axe stroke, cleaving criminal from life of heinous deeds, adulterations, strife. Since no one wants to learn this ancient trade, to sharpen or to wield the deadly blade, the choice remains to find another way to chastise, ugh, chastise foul malingerers, make them pay. Or maybe we could join the boycott of the axeman's trade and smother them with love. <laughs> this is another class poem out of one of Mike Henry's classes, and it was one of those assignments where you had to add, you had to talk about a common object and a fancy dinner and an unusual sport and um, uh, refer to lines from a well-known famous poet. And I think maybe I see better without these, I don't know. <laughs> it's called Waiting for Slow. Fat keys stop traffic, cars not in a clump, waiting for slow waddlers to get across. Sitting in my car, I feel their sleekness, one hip and breast forward, one back, everything fluid, firm, no extra wobble or sidelong glance to check if I'm doing it right like the night we walked up Central Park West after dinner at a restaurant tucked in on 56th that went back from the street like a railway car. All the tables on one side in alcoves brocaded with velvet along a long corridor, Veal Tornado, a discreet waiter pouring out crimson Chateauneuf-du-Pape into long-stemmed glasses. And we were young, and one with a throbbing city, hip and breast, everything firm, fluid, trained up for life's marathon. And now I am here, at the end of all this exploration, knowing that I've gone a long, long way to get back to the beginning, back to the moment in which 
these bones, this tissue skin, are anchored in a life rimmed with beauty and terror, moored to an angel's pinions, where I can still bend enough to kneel on the ground. This last one, this is a state of the state poem. This is about today. I wrote it yesterday for wonderful John Brim's class in reading as a writer on the poetry of William Carlos Williams. There is a paraphrase that some of you will recognize of a very famous poem by Williams. It's in all the anthologies. Everybody reads it, and it's awesome. This will show you the difference between a struggling student and a master. It's called Before Biopsy. These soft globes are suddenly spawning aliens. A girl's surprise become bearers of mortality. Not milk, not goddess objects, but wonderfully, fearfully alive. So much depends upon a sharp, hollow needle hunting mutant cells in the dark room. Thank you. Thank you, Shirley. I'm never going to say poo-poo about any of these silly writing exercises. That second poem was amazing. All of them were amazing. <laughs> Thank you. Vicki Mandel King has been writing poetry what seems most of her life. She caped it up even during a 30-year career as an assistant federal public defender. Her poetry has appeared in a number of fine literary journals. Her first book is soon to be published, and another is in the critique stage. As of June 4th, Vicki is now a yaya, the Greek name for grandmother, of a sweet little girl named Violet. She will be reading two poems, I Can't Stop Thinking About the Dog, and, and Why Not? Please welcome Vicki. Thank you. Um, I've actually changed one of the poems, and I've changed the order. So, um, the fir- uh, but it's still two poems. This first poem is about the Four Mile Canyon fire in Boulder County in September 2010. Kind of apt, given the fires that are raging right now. My husband, my son, and my now daughter-in-law were in Greece, my dream trip that we went on after I retired and repurposed. And we came home to find that all these homes had been destroyed, including my friends. This poem has its title in an epigraph from Gone with the Wind. There is one reference to a defunct airline Pan American, and there are two lines that I will attempt to sing, and I apologize in advance. (laughs) 
this love of the land. There's no getting away from it if you're Irish. Gerald O'Hara said to Katie Scarlett. My friend Penny is Irish. Her hair once the color of copper. She can't stay away from the mountain where the wildfire changed everything. Nights she sleeps in a trailer. Days she labors piling stones. An echo of Irie's famine, the blighted underground her people building walls of stone for a pittance. I remember landing in Limerick, changing out of my Pan Am blues, and walking into Dirty Nelly's, where Jerry O'Sullivan lifted a mug of dark foamed ale and sang... Leaving on a jet plane, I don't know if I'll be back again. I wonder what my life would have been had I said yes to his clutter ring. But like Penny, I know where I belong. Scarlet, too, returned to Tara. With lily-white hands, she dug in the charred earth, searching for tubers and corms, roots, anything to feed on. That pennies, peonies, have come back through layers of melt and ash is all the incentive she needs to stay. Ants, black ones, have come back too, hidden like fairies in the doubled petals. They come back not because the flowers need them to bloom, but for the sweet nectar found in the bud's wax coat. Thank you. And this second one uh, just goes to show, I guess, Once a public defender, always a public defender, in the way you think about things. I can't stop thinking about the dog, tied up and beaten as a puppy. Finally rescued, he'd lay his large head in his owner's lap and lick the children's faces. Only to be stolen, tied to a speeding truck and hauled up a hill, running as long as his long legs could last until they finally ran out, dragged to death. I rage, imagining the awful ways I would punish this man. But there it is the same capacity for cruelty latent in me. And so I remember Gary on death row and know this man too must have his story and how nothing rescued him from this repeating. No innate trait of alchemy that turns cruelty into kindness No concerned look of a stranger, not even a glimpse of another way to be in the world. Thank you.
up again. I have four of those dogs. <laughs> Thank you. That is really, those were beautiful. <laughs> Josh Randall is an MFA student teaching an intermediate fiction class next semester. He will be reading the opening to promotion, a short story from a collection he's working on. Welcome, Josh. Hi guys. So uh, this is the first two sections of a sh uh, short story about working in retail. Uh, the second section is a little bit condensed just to meet time restrictions. It's called promotion. Five minutes shy of my break and Mr. Bird calls my register phone to report vomit aisle five. <laughs> then he asks, what's pharmacy surplus's goal? I say what I've said for four years. I say to provide an exemplary customer experience. The phone goes dead. I wave to Kyle. He ignores me because the shift is over. I wave to Mrs. Dottie and she covers my register. On aisle five, I see it. Just below the canned sardines is a puddle of blue syrup and bile which has me thinking some little snot couldn't handle his raspberry slush. <laughs> no big deal. Last summer, an entire junior soccer team vomited their congratulatory sushi over the glass drink case, the nighttime medicine, the greeting cards, and I was pulling dried pieces of cucumber off potato chip packages for a month. <laughs> this mess will be gone in no more than 10 minutes. I roll my sleeves. I equip my yellow gloves certified for biohazardous cleanup. Mr. Bird peeks his face around the corner to inspect. Super he says, and nothing else before walking away. He's busy. On his office calendar is a Watford Regional Sudoku competition, double-starred in red, sparkly ink, taken from one of the child children's coloring sets that offers lined pictures of dragons burning slash mutilating princesses as a canvas, sold on aisle seven. As soon as things are clean and the regu regulated safety sign warning of sudden slippage due to wet floor is in place, an old woman pokes me between the shoulder blades and points to the register. I scan her calcium vitamins, her chocolate raisins, adult diapers. She stares at me like I need to learn something. <laughs> You've been working here a long time, she says. Find a real job. <laughs> It gets late. Before we leave, I corner Mr. Bird in his office and stand behind his desk as he stares at a Sudoku problem marked mentally insane until he's certain I won't go away. I want to know about the manager's position. Am I still being considered? Yes, he says. But take this lesson. A manager must have patience to be successful. He waits, takes what comes, and acts with vigilance and honor. I nod and thank him for the lesson, adding that I admire his wisdom. <laughs> As my car door shuts, the broken driver's side mirror that dangles and scrapes against the door when I take turns fast clinks. The radio blares. A commercial comes on with lots of people that used to do nothing but have sex for money, sell drugs, or steal their mother's social security checks. Now, thanks to Watford Technical School, they live happy, fulfilled lives working as mechanics and plumbers and welders, making 20 plus. I turn on to Enchanted View Street, 
which is neither enchanted or with a view unless you count our neighbor's lime green RV set up on four cinder blocks, thinking about how I cleaned vomit for seven an hour. The house is dark when I get home. Max, my little brother, is watching TV, eating Cheerios with expired marshmallows floating in the bowl. He's glued to a gunfight coming from our wooden-framed TV set that gives the picture a green tint in the right-hand corner. Our father got it for free out of someone's garbage, and we think it's from the 70s. Where's Dad, I say. Quiet, Max says. This is the good part. Gangsters are shooting through a cloudy doorway like they're going to hit something, and the camera pans up to show a man in a black hat pull a sawed-off shotgun from his vest and blow the head off an unsuspecting gangster. Max slurps milk from his bowl and spills a little on his shirt. God damn, he's a pro, Max says. You don't mess with anyone who wears a hat like that. (laughs) Max is 11, but he talks big and grown. I tell him to cool down, be young, He says young is boring. He wants to be an adult so he can drive a motorcycle over the Grand Canyon or skydive from space or bring back the dead with an incantation and then use them to battle demons. I think he just wants not to hurt anymore about his mother, my mother, who is dead from throat cancer and at the end would scream at us in a robot voice to clean the fucking dishes or get a real job. I think Max wants to be older because he believes things will have to be different, happier. I won't say otherwise. I don't want him to find out that being older just means that there's one less day or month or year to make things the way you want them to be. Thanks, Josh. My husband and I always talk about this humor that has insight and caught that and then that twist again. Thanks. That was great. Um, Okay, I've got my handwritten one. (laughs) In another life, still the same one, by the way, Larry Snow was a commercial building contractor here in Denver, fourth generation. In addition to building new structures, many of them churches, his firm renovated a number of historic buildings, each with the own wealth of stories. Some, a smattering really, including ghosts. Larry is reading tonight from his novel in progress, The Prince of Admission, the tale of modern-day coin dealer Stan Logan, who makes the mistake of of falling for Isabel Springer, a woman with a rare and valuable dime whom he encounters at Denver's Brown Palace Hotel, a woman he will later learn, and under the most dire circumstances, is a ghost. Please welcome Larry. We're going to have to put this mic up here, I think. Is that still all right? Yes. Okay. Hmm. The, sm- the smell brought me around food rotting, ammonia, urine maybe. I hoped it wasn't mine. I was soaked anyway, three layers through, and cold, god-awful cold. Ice, di- ice storm, I remembered. St. Louis. Alley. Gun, a faint noise, near, 
clicking, or was it scratching? I opened my eyes and yelped at the same time. It squealed. Eyes, wet, black, enormous, whiskers inches from my nose. Mouth open, fangs, the fangs, I think I imagined. It scurried across the broken pavement, worm tail, the last to wriggle beneath a battered dumpster. More squealing, paired eyes watching, huddled, drooling maybe. Not that I could do anything. It hurt, too much to move. I glanced down, blood, not a pool of it, not yet. God, it hurt to breathe. Come on, what are you waiting for? Do I have to blow it up first? Four stories above, a volley of lightning torched the gunpowder sky. Thunder followed, wave after percussive wave shuddering inside me. Frozen power lines slapped a brick wall. A string of icicles broke free, hurtled earthward, exploded. I managed to shut my eyes as the tiny slivers showered my face. A car door slammed. I ratcheted my head as far as I could in a small but excruciating fraction more. A black over white St. Louis police cruiser idled crosswise at the top of the alley. Alternating bursts of red and blue light bounded off the ice-glazed walls. Headlamps on high beam cast in the large shadow of a policeman. Thick set, body hunched, gun drawn. Approaching one step at a time, my fingers twitched, then fell, stu- fell still. Even my voice failed me. Man down, man down, the cop yelled into his shoulder radio. Frozen petals, fo- frozen puddles shattered underfoot as he broke into a run. When he got to me, he bent over, gasping. Ice pellets slid from his cap piled at his feet like empty grains of sand. Gunshot, he said. White male, powder burns to the chest. He scanned the alley over over the barrel of a Glock semi-automatic, then pressed a warm pair of fingers to my neck. Still alive, barely given his pulse. What's that? The cop twisted his earbud. Yeah, get a bus up here, now, full siren. Good, I thought, an ambulance. They'll have blankets, warm blankets. I sucked in a breath, shallow, searing, terrified my lungs might implode. A black cat with severe yellow eyes leapt from the, du- from the dumpster. Jesus, the cop shouted, fumbling my wallet as he went for his Glock. His gun must have had the two-stage trigger. Otherwise, the fleeing Tom would have joined the graffiti as wall art. He blew out a breath then stared down at me and again inclined his head. Jimmy, you still there? Good. Got a billfold here. Shooter must have tossed it. He holstered his gun, cinched on a latex glove, then took a knee and came back up holding my wallet. 
Stanley Samuel Logan, Colorado driver's license 92812. Can't make out the rest. There's an old 50-cent piece in the license sleeve, probably rubbed off the numbers. Can do. Born December 13, 1960, 5 foot 9 inches, 175 pounds. Hair brown, eyes hazel. He pried the wallet open. No cash, probably stolen. Nope, no ski parka. Must be another guy. Corduroy overcoat, sport coat underneath. Maybe a vest. Other than the blue jeans and cowboy boots, businessman would be my guess. Coin dealer, I wanted to tell him. A coin dealer from Denver. The cop hiked his pants to the underside of his gut. He squinted at the brick walls, shoved the sash of a window painted shut, then crossed the alley and tested the door where I had hidden as Isabel Springer fled. What had I been thinking? Jumping a man with a gun? My eyesight blurred, lids heavy. The pain wasn't so awful now. The cop could go after Isabel, protect her. Wait. Isabel, she'd gotten away, but Bergen had to be close behind. I inhaled deeply this time. This time, ribs expanding, pain probing like a thousand rusting needles. The tug came first, then a tear. A bitter and impossibly warm slurry flooded the back of my throat. I forced my eyes open and attempted to speak, to at least whisper. What came out was a hideous gurgle. Hey, Jimmy, how's that ambulance coming? The cop said. Another ten minutes? Shit! His voice resounded off the brick and mortar canyon. When he spoke again, it was in a strained hush. Are you kidding me? Yeah, well, screw the glare ice. I drove those same streets. Listen, you tell those candy-ass stretcher jockeys, if they don't show in the next two minutes, Stan here isn't going to need their goddamn meat wagon. He's going to need a fucking hearse. Wow, I really felt the chill of that. Was it St. Louis? That cold St. Louis night, I could feel that. Great. Vivid. Um, This is the end of our evening. I want to thank you for coming to the Lighthouse, and I want to let you know that um, 30% of the money that we need to to sponsor all the programs for everybody here comes from donations. And we are supposed to have a donation box back there, so if anybody would care to help out, we'd love to get get your input. If you would like a a receipt or if you want to write a check or credit card, there are little white envelopes there. So, um, but thank you so much for coming. For those of you who haven't been here before, please come back again. (laughs) Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.